0: Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at Mazda of South This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. Hot flashes, night sweats, emotional changes, difficulty sleeping, dry skin, dry eye, dry mouth. All of these are signs of menopause, something all women endure at some point in their lives. And this year, 30,000 women living in Charlotte will reach menopause and perimenopause. Many have difficult experiences with this natural progression, but there are ways to be more comfortable. And this week... Women's health physicians are gathering in Charlotte to help patients become educated and ready for this life stage. Two of those physicians are with us today in advance of a two-day event which begins tonight and which is already sold out, but you can watch it on video later. We'll talk about that. We have information about that on our website as well at WFAE.org. Dr. James Simon is clinical professor of OBGYN at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He is also head of Intim Medicine Specialists, and in that private practice, He focuses on menopause and sexual health, among other things, and has pioneered using both hormonal and non-hormonal therapies, which have resulted in his receiving numerous awards and the distinction of being given the nickname, The Menopause Whisperer, by Washingtonian Magazine. Welcome to the program.
1: Good morning, Mike
0: morning. We're also joined by Dr. Elise Kelly-Jones, an OB-GYN who practices at Tryon Medical Partners and serves as the chair of the Public Outreach Committee of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Thank you for being here as well. Thank you. So let me begin with you, Dr. Simon, because you're our out-of-town guest. Uh and, and because of this nickname bestowed on you by uh, Washingtonian Magazine, I know that among your awards, you're named one of America's top obstetricians and gynecologists. You're on the list of super doctors in Washington, D.C. In the Baltimore area, you are listed as one of D.C.'s top physicians. Is that why they named you the menopause whisper? or are there other factors?
1: No, I think, Mike, it's because I... Being a reproductive endocrinologist and having been involved in the whole assisted reproduction process, decided to take a right turn and work with those women who were past their reproduction and interested in a healthy, happy uh, aging process after menopause, and was one of the pioneers in that area, uh, being old enough to. uh, to do so. Uh,
0: Though it's certainly no laughing matter for a lot of women, menopause has often been the subject of comedians' jokes, female comedians, probably because it is universal in nature. I would think, however, that most people are aware of what menopause is, but I read an article by an OBGYN yesterday that said when talking about it, it's important to define it. So, Dr. Simon, give me a definition. Uh,
1: Mike... The menopause is the cessation of normal menstrual cycles. And if that goes on for one full year, then a woman is said to be in menopause or menopausal. It's pretty simple. No spontaneous menstrual cycles for a year, you're menopausal.
0: So, Dr. Jones, that would seem to me not to be a problem, but there are other side effects associated with this transition in in life. Uh, What are the symptoms that a lot of women experience with this?
2: So, there are 45 symptoms or more of perimenopause and menopause, and unfortunately, they begin many years before that final menstrual period that Dr. Simon was talking about. So, the hot flashes and night sweats are often late symptoms. The early symptoms are mood issues, sleeping issues, changes in a menstrual cycle pattern. You can go from no bleeding to normal cycles to heavy bleeding all within like, like a few months of each other. Um, and oftentimes women are thinking, oh, it's this I did, or it's that I did, or this other thing I did but it's usually not. It's usually their ovarian function is declining, causing this roller coaster of perimenopause.
0: And as I understand it, it's a different experience for everybody. It's a very individualized experience. Uh, uh, Some have an easier time than others. Do we understand why that is, Dr. Jones?
2: I'm not sure that we completely understand why some women experience it differently than others. It likely goes back to a genetic influence and uh, you know potentially where somebody originated from. Um, but we, we see that that some women are fine and then some women are just, they just can't function with their symptoms.
0: Uh, before I asked Dr. Jones to answer that, I saw Dr. Simon getting ready to, so I know you wanna chime in, go ahead. So in addition to
1: a genetic component, as Dr. Kelly Jones noted, there's also a social component. So an older study from Scandinavia showed that younger women going through menopause who had moms who had or complained of very severe menopausal symptoms, actually likewise complained of very severe menopausal symptoms. And when checked to determine in an objective way, whether those symptoms were really as bad as they were purporting, it was more of a social issue, that is to say, women whose moms had complained about a lot of symptoms, likewise complained about a lot of symptoms, even if they weren't on a uh, objective scale that bad. So there's a, an objective issue, as Dr. Kelly Jones noted. There's a social issue, as I just mentioned, and a whole bunch of things we really don't understand.
0: So there are factors like being told, "Oh, you're that's where you are in your life." Oh my God, I'm, I remember when I went through that. Here's how it was for me. That influences people psychologically. You bet.
2: Okay. And I think there's a lot of association with um, potentially a shame component, meaning. I, you know tough it up get through it i got through it you'll be fine and i think that's been passed down for a a couple of decades too
0: so there are two times as i understand it you're the experts here but as i understand it there are two times that women experience these hormonal changes one one time at at puberty and then during this menopausal time in their lives And I know, Dr. Simon, this is not your area of expertise, but men certainly experience the first in their hormonal changes, puberty. Do they they experience anything remotely like what happens during menopause for women?
1: Well, what's sometimes called the male menopause is quite different. Uh, Women's menopause is relatively abrupt. After they finish that 12 months or 12 menstrual cycles of absent periods, they really have very, very little hormonal uh, residual uh, that they were making when they were menstruating. Men, it's much more gradual, their hormones go down as they age. uh, But it's not an abrupt end, the way we talk about a woman's menopause it's more of a slow tapering off over time and the timing is very different so the average woman goes through her menopause at around age 51 and a man's hormones are still tapering down as he gets older passes 50 passes 60 and by the time he's in his mid to late 70s they're really down near basement
0: Uh, The onset of puberty, Dr. Kelly-Jones, appears to be happening earlier uh, around the world for for young girls and and young women. Is there a similar shift associated with the onset of menopause? Is that happening earlier? Is it happening later, or has it changed not at all?
2: It, It really hasn't changed over the last, I think, at least probably 20 or 30 years. Probably Dr. Simon can chime in on this one, too. But it's been pretty steadily this average age is 51 my entire career. Um, And and I think a lot of that has to do with Mother Nature. Mother Nature really kind of designed us to stop everything at 50. And now we know women live 30 to 40 years past 50. So it's uh, we kind of blame it on Mother Nature.
0: Do You want to chime in on that, Dr. Simon?
2: Yeah.
1: So, Mike, that's actually the problem. Uh, Mother Nature, as Dr. Kelly Jones noted, hasn't changed the age of menopause uh, from about age 51. And yet women who used to die even before their menopause in high numbers, historically, um, are now living to be 80, 90, 100 years of age. And without hormones, following menopause, there are some pretty significant changes in those women's bodies that weren't meant for healthy aging during those 30, 40, or 50 years following their last menstrual period.
0: So what is the difference? There are two terms that we tossed around earlier, perimenopause and menopause. What is the difference How do you know when you've moved from one to the other? How long is the uh, perimenopausal period before you go into menopause, Dr. Simon?
1: So the perimenopause is highly variable. It's usually defined, as Dr. Kelly Jones mentioned, by changes in sleep, mood, sometimes hot flashes, even when a woman is menstruating, irregular menstrual cycles, et cetera. And it can last a variable amount of time, giving confusion to those women and their healthcare professionals, as as well. So it's a bit of a mixed bag and highly individual, as we've already mentioned.
0: Uh, As I said at the very beginning, you're both uh, speaking tonight at this event that is now sold out, uh, but it's on menopause and hormone therapy and the facts that will change your life. That's the name of this conference beginning tonight, the purpose of which is to educate women, and then there's an event tomorrow that will educate doctors further on some of these things. And Dr. Kelly Jones, uh, you're both scheduled to speak on hormone therapy, HRT, Uh, in the scheme of things. How long have these therapies been around? And we'll talk about them falling out of favor and coming back in a second, but how long have they been around?
2: They have been around for a very, very long time, long before I was even an apple in my mom's eye. And they, they were used for a period of time. We discovered that the way we were using them wasn't quite exactly right. And so then that shifted and then it, over, in 20, 2002, we had the release of the Women's Health Initiative findings. And over the last 20 years, that's really changed how we've thought about hormones and, and um, to women's detriment, actually.
0: Yeah, you refer to the fact that a study came out that changed the way people thought about these in 2002, I think you said. Prior to that, as you said, you had been using them quote-unquote, incorrectly, and a previous study alluded to the fact that they may have resulted in an increase in heart disease and breast cancer, and when that came out, people stopped using them. It fell off a cliff. Uh, but a newer study that you pointed out pointed to paints a different picture. Uh so which of these studies, and I have thirty seconds, Dr. Simon, which of these studies are women supposed to believe?
1: <laughs> so it, it it's very complicated, but the simple answer is if you look carefully in the details, all the studies actually agree much and what was different about the different studies resulting in the different outcomes was the different women were studied. Young women have benefits mostly from hormones, older women just the opposite.
0: And we will talk about that and more when we come back at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car-buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on listener-funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking about menopause, perimenopause, and we're going to move into talking about hormonal therapies for menopause, which have fallen in and out of favor, they're back, and there's a reason for that, and we'll talk about that in this next segment with Dr. James Simon, who is the head of Intim Medicine Specialists in Washington, D.C., and dubbed the Menopause Whisperer uh, by Washingtonian Magazine. He also uh, is a clinical professor at George Washington University, and Dr. Elise Kelly Jones is a doctor of gynecology and women's sexual health at Tryon Women's Center here. In Charlotte, in, in an article written Dr. Kelly Jones about uh, by your one of your colleagues at the uh, Trium Medical Partners, Dr. Christopher Morris, he writes that while menopausal hormonal therapies have received mixed reviews in popular media, these articles often overstate risks while disregarding health benefits. And you have written about the fact and fiction of these therapies and say that it is not true. Not true that hormone therapy will cause strokes, heart attacks, or cancer, and you've called them critical to alleviating uncomfortable symptoms like hot flashes and sleep disturbances. So talk about the pros and cons, why popular media has not caught up with the new study that you alluded to a few minutes ago that debunks all of this.
2: So I want to clarify something. There's really the data from 2002 till now are abundant. It's not one study. It's a multitude of studies. And it's also looking at the data from the 2002 study in a different way and light. That's what we've really come to understand in the last 20 years is the information that came out of WHI that led to the package warning that is on all hormones that says it may cause breast cancer, heart attack, stroke, and early dementia is what has become problematic for women in general and their providers. So in today's world, we now know that if women initiate hormone therapy early in their menopause, within 10 years from their final menstrual period and under age 60, they actually prevent cardiovascular disease. They prevent type two diabetes and they prevent osteoporosis, which actually kills more women in this country every year than breast cancer. So, you know, I get often asked, my menopause isn't that bad. Why should I think about hormone therapy? And those are all the reasons why a woman should consider hormone therapy.
0: And this goes back to what Dr. Simon was talking. I think it was Dr. Simon. One of you talked about, um, how women are living far longer than they used to, uh, and uh, many of them didn't used to reach menopause, and now they're living 30, 40 years beyond it, leading to physical uh, problems that would not have occurred earlier because they weren't alive to experience them after uh, menopause had, had set in. Uh, and uh, talk about that, Dr. Simon, talk about the, the, the benefits of taking these therapies.
1: So Mike, as Dr. Kelly Jones mentioned, we always have to focus on the who. When we talk about the patient, the patient's not just one person. It's not just one person with one set of historical or medical issues. Everyone is a little different. And taking that individual into account may help to cast her benefits versus her risks. And we got into trouble with these studies by lumping everyone together. And a 79-year-old woman without hot flashes is not the same as a 50-year-old woman with hot flashes. And that's where we really ran amok in our understanding of these studies. In young women, Around age 50, the average age of menopause being 51, and anyone younger than that age, those women benefit and benefit greatly from using hormone therapy. They benefit in ways that no other medications available to them can give them, increasing their longevity their health, reducing their risk of heart attack, stroke, diabetes, osteoporosis, and reducing their risk of death from any cause by a third. No other medications available to them can do that. And yet, many of them think only about the risks which have been largely overplayed and largely relate to women who are much older when starting hormones.
0: Why Why is it more efficacious to begin younger?
1: There are a large number of reasons for that. But think about this. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And our bodies, men's, women's, everyone's bodies, change as we age once one gets a predominant disease going in their body, it's much more difficult to turn the tide back to a benefit. Think about this. If you've already broken a bone, it's much more difficult to fix the rest of the skeleton than it is to prevent that loss of bone and that fracture from the get-go. And we do this in our daily lives, in just about everything. Why would it be different for menopause?
0: So so to be clear, you're saying that uh, pre- prevention is, is much better than curing something after the onset of, of a disease or a problem that's happening as a result of uh, reduced hormones in, following menopause.
1: Absolutely. Okay. That's the take home message here.
0: So Dr. Kelly Jones, what happens to women who may fall in that window where physicians or, or the studies came out that said, oh, these are bad. Don't do this anymore. And people stopped taking them. Well, now they, th- that's been reversed because you have a better understanding of how to administer them and what stage in life you administer certain dosages, et cetera. Right. What about those women who didn't take them and they're well beyond 51? Is it too late?
2: So that's a great question, Mike and uh, Dr. Simon. And I see those patients every day. Uh, they're the more complicated patients and it generally depends on what's bothering them the most. Uh, if it's hot flashes and night sweats, uh, and they're a candidate for hormone therapy, then that's an option, but there's also a bunch of options that are non-hormonal that can treat those symptoms. If her, uh, complaint is more uh, vaginal dryness, then there's things that we can do for that. But we have to individualize that patient. And even if a patient may have cardiovascular risk factors, they have high cholesterol, they have hypertension, they can get clearance from a cardiologist to begin hormone therapy. So my message, it's not too late and Let's figure out what's bothering you the most.
0: But I guess my question was not so much uh, taking these hormonal treatments uh, to, uh, to treat symptoms that are troublesome, uh. but perhaps to, to stopping the onset of problems that happen as the result of reduced natural production of hormones. If you miss that window, is it too late to prevent osteoporosis or arteriosclerosis or th- some of the other things that result from those, that situation?
2: And I, I guess my point is it depends on where they are right now. So if I have a patient that's older, that's coming to see me, I'm going to get a bone density to see where her bones are right now, because if she has osteopenia and she's a candidate for estrogen therapy, yes, that can prevent the development of osteoporosis. It's actually FDA approved for that indication. So it wouldn't be too late for that individual patient as long as I still think she's a candidate.
0: So as I understand it, some women who have had uh, breast cancer uh, cannot take estrogen. Uh, Why and what are their options if that is the case? Dr. Kelly, Dr. Simon, go ahead.
1: So this is an incredibly good question that is highly controversial and that Dr. Kelly Jones and I will not settle on your show today. Here's my take. First, most breast cancers occurring in menopausal women have receptors on their cells for estrogen. And it's become clear that estrogen sensitive or responsive cells grow when given estrogen, like fertilizer in your garden. However, we now know from a large number of studies that women who have been successfully treated for their estrogen receptor positive breast cancers can in fact go on hormones safely after their treatment is completed. That's new, that's controversial, and most of the cancer doctors would say, you're never really cured of your breast cancer, so how could you possibly go on something that could potentially act as fertilizer? That's where we get this controversy.
0: So that's Dr. Simon's take, and he said we wouldn't settle it on the program today, Dr. Kelly Jones, what's yours?
2: I am in full agreement with Dr. Simon with regard to everything he just said. And we also have to meet the patient where they are. What, what, what are they interested in pursuing? How do they feel about hormone therapy versus some of the other things that they have available? What does their oncologist think? we typically involve the oncologist in this process when we have a patient uh, that's presenting with these particular issues so you know it's it's not an easy decision for the patient for me or the oncologist that's involved
0: it really is uh, difficult there's a risk to anything there's a risk to everything in life, and every choice that you make has a risk associated with, with it. And one of the risks here, of course, of taking some horm- horm- hormonal therapies is uh, uh, an increased breast cancer uh, uh, risk. But Dr. Uh, Wolf U- U- Utian, if I said his name correctly, director of the North American Menopause Society, says, any risk is worrisome, but it's important to put this risk in perspective and understand it is actually small uh, and they quote some figures here. For every 1,000 women not using hormone therapy, about three will develop breast cancer every year. So every 1,000 people not taking it, three. Among the 1,000 using hormone therapy, that number is four. It seems to me that that risk is so small as to be almost unmeasurable. Do you Do you have these conversations with your patients, both of you? Dr. Simon.
1: We certainly do. And Mike, it's actually even slightly less than four. It's (laughs) 3.8. So it's not even four. And it's less than one woman in a thousand that would, worst case scenario, get breast cancer uh, if a thousand women were on hormones. Less than one extra woman. And I want to reiterate worst case scenario because many of us believe that using slightly different forms of hormone therapy result in no additional cases of breast cancer, even in a thousand women. And there are a number of good studies suggesting that that is in fact the case.
0: How many different options, Dr. Kelly Jones, do you have when it comes to hormonal therapy treatments?
1: Hey, Mike, your show's not long enough.
2: (laughs) I was going to say that's what makes my job so amazing is I do have so many choices for menopause hormone therapy. And some of that did come out of the repercussions of WHI. WHI studied one type of hormone therapy, perimarin combined with Provera. And that's the player that we think may be more involved with breast cancer And so in today's world, I have at least five ways to give estradiol through a woman's skin. I can give her progesterone by mouth, which is like her natural progesterone. Um, And then there's all kinds of formulations after that. So once again, we have to individualize each woman's goals, which we're trying to go after. And then, you know, what are her risks? I might treat somebody with a family history of breast cancer differently than I might treat somebody that doesn't have that family history.
1: And Mike, I want to bring up one other thing. It's really important for women that have had a hysterectomy. And there are about a half a million women every year in the U.S. that have hysterectomies, have their uterus removed. For them, they do not require the use of progesterone or a synthetic form of progesterone. And there's data from this same women's health study showing that the same kind of estrogen that we've just talked about as potentially causing or increasing a woman's risk of breast cancer when given with progesterone or a synthetic form thereof, When given alone, just estrogen in women who had a hysterectomy, it actually reduces their risk of breast cancer. So it appears that estrogen and synthetic forms of progesterone might increase, albeit slightly, the risk of breast cancer, whereas estrogen alone particularly the kind that was used to prove that estrogen was safe in women with a hysterectomy, actually can reduce a risk of breast cancer, and significantly so.
0: So Dr. Kelly-Jones, I know the two of you do this every day. You meet with patients, you diagnose, you, you prescribe treatments, but you have so many options in terms of which products to prescribe and no two women are alike, neither are their situations. You also have to decide on dosages and timing and when to start and when to to stop. How do you reach a tailored decision on how to treat?
2: Well, when we meet with our uh, patients, it's generally the initial visit is trying to figure out what bothers them the most. What are their most significant symptoms? Are they perimenopause or are they menopausal? because I'm going to treat those patients a little bit differently. And then what are their preferences with regard to the types of therapy? So it's no longer the time that I'm the doctor and I tell you what to do. We call this a shared risk discussion or a shared decision-making. And so we talk about options. And then in our practice, we do a lot of Um, measuring of hormones, which I will say from the get-go, it can be controversial whether you measure hormones or not. We find it abundantly helpful. Um, Not all physicians measure hormones or not all practitioners measure hormones, but that's kind of the way we get started. What are your symptoms? What are your labs telling me? And then what would you, what are your preferences? Which is great for women that they have lots of choices.
0: I want to come back and talk about some of these choices, including non hormonal therapies that uh, you may prescribe, and what the side effects to all of these uh, various treatments may be, and whether they are worse than, better than what women are already having to go through as a result of all this. We'll do that when we come back at Charlotte Talks. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience more at mazda of south charlotte.com it's charlotte talks on wfae and wfhe i'm mike collins we're talking about menopause and treatments for it hormonal and otherwise with two experts on the topic uh, Dr. James Simon, who is head of the Intim Medicine Specialists in Washington, D.C. and clinical professor of OBGYN at George Washington University, better known to many in that area as the Menopause Whisperer, and Dr. Elise Kelly-Jones, doctor of gynecology and women's sexual health at Tryon Women's Center here in Charlotte. We were talking about the various uh, treatments, hormonal treatments and how you, you choose one over another or a combination of them and what the dosage is and when you start, et cetera, and how those decisions are reached. Dr. Jones, what are the side effects of some of these? Are they better than, worse than, uh, than the actual uh, uh, the complaints that women have about going through menopause? So uh,
2: common side effects can include uh, breast tenderness, bleeding issues, bloating, um, you know, women, those are probably the main things that we hear. But the, one of the things that's super important is the individualization of therapy. And our goal is always to individualize the therapy, treat all the symptoms and not cause side effects. Remember, we're giving back a woman's estradiol. She made that in buckets and buckets for decades, same with progesterone. So if we can give that back to the point that she doesn't have symptoms and we're talking about microdoses compared to what she used to make, then we typically don't cause side effects.
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask Dr. Simon. Uh, you're not completely replacing natural hormones that the body has been producing for, for all these years. So how does the dosage compare? And if it's micro dosages, why does it help? So, so let's let's try and put this in
1: perspective. Every woman's body is slightly different. But on average, when a woman is having her menstrual cycle, she makes about 120 to 150 parts, let's just call them parts, of estradiol on average, every day of her life, from let's say age 12 until age 50, 120 to 150. When we give back estradiol, we typically give it back in a range of 30 to 60. So let's say one third to one fourth of what she was making her entire reproductive life. And that's adequate because we're not trying to mimic exactly what she was making when she was younger. We're just giving back enough to prevent those disorders that we talked about or those symptoms that Dr. Kelly Jones was talking about. Symptoms like hot flashes, night sweats, disturbed sleep, vaginal pain, intercourse, et cetera and symptom reduction like bone loss, hot flashes, uh, cardiovascular risk reduction, et cetera. These are done at levels less than necessary to make babies. And we have good data showing just how little can suffice.
0: Let me ask you, Dr. Simon, because you're out of town and you don't have a competitive dog in the race, so to speak if all OBGYNs are created equal when it comes to prescribing and, understand the in, and understanding the intricacies of these treatments and dosages, etc., Because Because uh, Diana uh, Bittner, Dr. Bittner, uh, who's an OBGYN at Grand Rapids, Michigan, listed five questions recently in a column, she wrote, that you should ask your OBGYN. And one of them is, what is your understanding of hormonal replacement therapies? So are all of you guys uh, created equal?
1: So I would argue very strongly that there are two separate answers to this very good question, Mike. The first is that for any question, not all doctors are created equal. That is a universal, not all practitioners are created equal, not everybody's experience is equal, and that makes us different. The Doctors that I know and the nurse practitioner that I know at Tryon have made special efforts to educate themselves above and beyond what's normal. The other part of this question, which is critical, is that since this big women's health initiative study came out that we've talked about here, many in academic circles, the people who train the doctors, nurse practitioners, and other healthcare professionals have lost touch with the current knowledge base. And so there's an entire generation of practitioners who never learn, who are in the primes of their careers, taking care of patients, but they never learned about hormones given the current context And so they're behind the times.
0: So as a patient who may be approaching this time in their life, what do you see as the most important questions to ask uh, to to decide whether this is the right physician for you? And once again, because you're out of town, I will ask that question to you, Dr. Simon. What are the questions you should be asking?
1: So I think the most important questions are the same ones that Dr. Bittner would have asked and you can bring them back around if you have a moment. But most importantly, it's to find out if the practitioner you're seeing has done special training in menopause uh, and hormone therapy. These training sessions are widely available given by the Menopause Society and there's a special certification If they do that training and pass the test, it's a menopause certified practitioner, and that extra certification gives some reassurance to a patient that she is seeing someone who's taken the effort, made the time, and passed the test as being a menopause expert.
0: Uh, Dr. Kelly Jones, uh, uh, anecdotally, one of the troubling things about getting older is that you suddenly go from taking maybe a a multivitamin every day to a pillbox full of prescriptions for high blood pressure and statin drugs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And some of these drugs are temporary and some of them are, well, once you start, you're on them for the rest of your life. What is the case with these hormonal therapy treatments? When do you start and can you ever stop? My,
2: my, thinking that I would say to a patient with regard to that is you're, you're starting now because you're very symptomatic and we're going to continue you for as long as those symptoms persist. And you may choose at some point to stop, to see if your symptoms are still present, but if they come back, then it, it would be advisable to restart. What I say to my patients is I'm not writing you a prescription for the rest of your life. I'm writing you a prescription for the next year. Let's see how you do. Let's see what other medical problems may be, may come up for you. And then let's see if there's, if we can continue this. Um, I have women in their seventies, eighties and nineties who are on hormone therapy and doing quite well on that therapy. So I, I, for, for me, it's uh, likely going to be an extended period because for most, mostly I see patients that are symptomatic. Um, but for any individual woman out there, she can just make that decision year to year to year as her health progresses.
0: So there are other therapies, non-hormonal therapies that are used to treat this, Dr. Simon. And some of them, some of them are drugs that were uh, developed for other uses, were never intended for this and somehow seem to help. Uh, Can you give me some examples of some of the non-hormonal therapies?
1: Certainly. So uh, we have two FDA-approved non-hormonal therapies, as well as several non-approved non-hormonal therapies that we use uh, frequently for treating uh, menopausal hot flashes, night sweats, and disturbances from them. Uh, The first is a medication called Rizdel. It's a very, very low dose of an antidepressant actually, a dose below that used for depression and below that where we get depression uh, medication side effects. And it's FDA approved for treating hot flashes. The other newer product, which actually works extremely well It's called BIOZA or Fezzolinotan, and it works independently in the brain in the place where those hot flashes start and night sweats start. And it acts in the brain as if it were estrogen, even though it has no relationship to estrogen at all, and reduces hot flashes and night sweats in that way. We also have a number of off-label, non-FDA approved products that are documented to help hot flashes and night sweats. They fall into a couple of broad categories. One broad category is other antidepressants. And so if a person is also depressed, that might be a good option for them. Get a twofer or a buy one, get one free, as I like to say. And then there are medications that are used for overactive bladder and urinary incontinence that also reduce hot flashes. So if a woman has both of those symptoms, you can get a buy one, get one free for her, for her hot flashes and her urinary incontinence.
0: So is this well, uh, one or the other? In other words, do, do doctors and patients choose to prescribe or take uh, hormonal therapies over these non, uh, these untraditional therapies or vice versa? Uh, who makes that decision? Uh, can they be taken simultaneously? What's the answer to that?
1: So it's usually a individualized decision. There are some women who are not and will not become candidates for hormones. A good example would be a woman who is undergoing treatment, active treatment for a hormone-dependent breast cancer. She is not at that time a candidate for hormones, but she is very likely to have very severe hot flashes. And if she is and will undergo non-hormonal treatment, she has a number of choices as we've mentioned. Another is a group of women who are so afraid of hormones or don't want to use hormones that they can use those non-hormonal treatments and they can use them because they're concerned about other medication interactions or other disorders, or they just feel more comfortable using a non-hormonal treatment. And they have options. And Dr. Kelly Jones and I, every day, patient by patient, try and figure out what's best for her in her specific circumstance.
0: So both of you are also experts and work with patients on sexual health. And I want to get into that in the few minutes that we have remaining, but I want to also out an advisory to our listeners who may have young people in the car or wherever they're listening that perhaps you want to listen to this on our podcast because something may be said that might be uncomfortable uh, for younger ears. We're going to start this right now, so just be aware of that. Uh, Among the things that can change with the onset of uh, menopause is lower libido. Uh, It's one of the major symptoms. What exactly, Dr. Kelly-Jones, is happening here?
2: So low libido, really the definition is, I don't feel like having sex. I used to feel like having sex and it's bothering me. So that's really what we start with. And then we try to figure out what's the cause. And oftentimes it's multifactorial. So it's not just about the patient's hormones. It's also about her partner interactions. It's about how her parents raised her. It's about her crazy, busy life and does she even have time to think about having sex? All those things come into play and we try to figure out what we can help modify.
0: And we know that there's both a physical uh, a mental and a uh, or, uh, and, and, and uh, physical component to sexual desire. If your brain's not there, you're you not, you're not going to want it. but on the other hand, if it's painful, you're also not going to want it even if you want it. So talk about the, how those two thi- things figure t- come together during this period of life and what do you do about it.
2: So when women go through menopause and lose their hormones, they will develop changes in their vulva and vagina that is, ge- is referred to as genitourinary syndrome of menopause or GSM for short. We used to call it vulvovaginal atrophy. We don't, don't refer to it that way anymore. And these are all the changes that are happening that will basically shrink the vagina, shrink the tissues, make them thinner, make them not be able to produce moisture for lubrication. And then that whole set of symptoms then leads to sexual pain. And it is a huge part of the women, female patients in the United States that are have this particular problem and are not being treated for it.
0: Are these difficult conversations for most of the patients that you see, or are these things that they really want to talk about and bring up on their own? Dr. Simon.
1: So this is a two-way street. It's very well documented, Mike, that the women are reluctant to bring it up, and the practitioners, whether they're men or women, Are reluctant to bring it up and we have what might be called a Mexican standoff it's just not brought up and the best way for this to actually happen because it's an incredibly important part of one's quality of life is for the practitioner to bring it up in a very non-threatening way two ways to do that are very easy one would be Many women in your stage of life have some sexual questions or concerns. Do you have any? The other way would be to say, you know, I take care of your husband, and he's brought up that, uh, you know, you're not having sex anymore, and he wanted me to bring it up to you, but would you like to bring this up and talk about it further? Let's get it out on the table.
0: Yeah, talking about it is the key here. It seems to be on about everything that we've been talking about this air, at this hour. That we should remove the mystery and the shroud of secrecy behind it and, and shame behind all of this. Uh, Dr. Elise Kelly Jones at the Tryon Women's Center in Charlotte. Dr. James Simon at George Washington University. Thank you both for the hour. Celebrating twenty-five years on the air, Charlotte
1: Talks with Mike Collins is a production of ninety-point-seven WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah D'Elia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org
0: slash charlottetalks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at Mazda mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com.